Welcome, my brothers and sisters, to our Solemnity of Corpus Christi, the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. As is uh, traditional, uh, both traditional in the church and traditional for us here at St. Mary's, we are going to have a Eucharistic procession immediately after Mass, uh, after communion, we'll expose the Blessed Sacrament and uh, we'll process out the side door here and just around the parish neighborhood uh, while we pray the rosary together. And we'll end back here in the church for benediction. Um, so I ask all of us, having partaken in the Eucharistic banquet here at Mass, let's extend our devotion to our blessed Lord in the sacrament a little bit longer today and just relish in that extra time spent before him. If you'd like to stay and participate with us, but you're not able to walk with us in procession, you can stay here in the church. Jesus is still here. He's in the tabernacle, just like he always is in our church. Uh, pray the rosary along with us. And if we time it just right, about when you're done, we'll be back in here for benediction. When, when I was growing up, when I was younger, I remember there was a thing that some of the kids would do in school um, called Blood Brothers. I never did this myself, so mom and dad, don't worry. Um, but it's where you would cut your thumb. You'd make a little cut in your thumb, and you'd press your thumb together with your friend, and the blood would commingle. And that mixture of the blood would make you more than friends. That was the idea. You were now more than friends. You were blood brothers. That sharing of the blood together formed a covenant. And we didn't know that word when we were kids. We wouldn't have called it that, but that's what it did. It formed a covenant bond. Kids can be smart. Kids can be very spiritually acute. And, and we knew, even without knowing words like covenant, we knew that something about blood was serious. There was something solemn, even, about this this sharing of blood with a friend. No one had to tell us that. We knew it innately. Because we knew that blood is serious business. It's embedded deep in our psyche. Right? Blood means life. And if you think, what the worst kind of monsters that human culture can imagine are vampires. And what do they do? They steal blood. By contrast, the free giving of your blood, if you freely share, shed your blood for someone else, that's seen as an act of great love and devotion because you can't share your blood, you can't give your blood without suffering pain. So the sharing of blood is a way of saying, I'm willing to suffer for you. I'm willing even to give my life for you. It's deeply meaningful, deeply meaningful. And so it should come as no surprise that we find nearly every religion throughout human history has practiced some form of blood sacrifice. There's a universal theme found in all religions that there's a rift, a gulf between the human and the divine and that in order to bridge that, that rift, we have to shed blood. That bridge can only be be crossed by the shedding of blood. And so we find blood sacrifices in every religion. The Jewish religion was built around this kind of blood sacrifice, going all the way back to the sacrifice offered by Abel the just, which we still reference in our prayers for the Mass. What we read today on the Solemnity of Corpus Christi from the book of Exodus 
is the passage that talks about the ratification of the Mosaic Covenant. And this passage comes um, at the end of a long uh, passage in Exodus where God spells out all the terms of the covenant. He spells out the terms of the covenant. He lays out his commands and the people ratify it. They give their assent. They say, yes, we will do all that God commands. And then that covenant is sealed with the sacrificing of bulls. And Moses takes some of the blood from that sacrifice and he sprinkles the people with the blood, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. And by that action, by being sprinkled with this blood, sacrificed for the Lord, Israel enters into a blood pact with God. That's the idea anyway. They enter into a blood pact with God. But, but there's something lacking in that blood offering. There's something lacking in that first covenant. And we see hints of it all throughout the Old Testament. We see hints of a new and more perfect covenant that would come. When we encounter the priest king Melchizedek offering a bloodless sacrifice of bread and wine, that's a sign of a more perfect covenant to come. When God instructs Abraham to offer his only son, Isaac, as a sacrifice, that's a sign of a more perfect covenant to come. When God stops Abraham's hand, and when Abraham tells Isaac, God himself will provide the lamb for the sacrifice, that's a sign of a more perfect covenant. When the psalmist says that God does not desire sacrifice, but a contrite spirit and a humble heart, that's a sign of a more perfect covenant to come. Because you see, no matter how many bulls or lambs we sacrifice to God in atonement for our sins, it can never be enough. And it can never be enough because God doesn't want bulls and he doesn't want lambs. He wants us. He wants us. There's another place in the Psalms where God says, all the beasts in the forest and in the fields already belong to me. They're already mine. The one thing that God can't possess unless we give it to him, is ourselves. God cannot possess us unless we give ourselves to him. Why? Because he made us free. He made us free in his image. And a free person can never be taken. A free person can only be offered, can only be given. So we have to offer ourselves in sacrifice, in oblation to God but we have to be a worthy sacrifice, right? Because only the spotless lamb was sacrificed. Only the first fruits of the harvest were sacrificed. The problem is, you and I are not worthy sacrifices because we're sinful creatures. We are sinful creatures. We need to be cleansed. And that's why the people in ancient Israel, the priests of ancient Israel, had to offer their sacrifices over and over again. First they had to sacrifice for their own sins, and then they sacrificed for the sins of the people. But in Christ Jesus, we have a high priest who makes a perfect sacrifice, a perfect offering, once and for all, because the sacrifice that he offers is himself, is perfect God, perfect man, united in that one person, Jesus Christ. And that's what all 
of the sacrifices that we read about in the Old Testament were preparing for. That perfect self-offering of the Son of God and the Son of Man in Jesus. It's the one and only sacrifice that could truly accomplish what all of those other sacrifices were pointing towards, were hinting at. That reconciliation of man to God, that bringing together, that wedding of the human and the divine. After that sacrifice was made, what happened to all the other sacrifices? They stopped. The temple was destroyed. No more sacrifices offered in Jerusalem. The Old Testament priesthood was brought to an end, and the church was established. And we were established as a kingdom of priests who could participate in that one eternal sacrifice of Christ, who is our high priest. But how do we do that? How do we participate in that one perfect offering of Christ? Jesus gives us a way. On the feast of Passover, Jesus gathered with his disciples in the upper room to commemorate the liberation of the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. That's what Passover was. It recalled the night when the firstborn of all Egypt were slain. But the people of Hebrew, of the Hebrew people, the Hebrew families, they were saved by the blood of the lamb sprinkled on their doorposts. And so the sacrifice of this Passover lamb became an obligatory memorial for the Jews. It was the most important feast of the entire year. So Jesus was gathered in Jerusalem in the upper room with his disciples to celebrate this most important feast. But at the Passover he celebrated, there is no sacrificial lamb. There is no sacrificial lamb. I imagine the disciples were sitting around the table looking around saying, well, I see the wine, I see the bread, I see the bitter herbs. Where's the lamb, Jesus? Where's the Passover lamb? God himself will provide the lamb. At this Passover feast, Jesus takes bread and he blesses it and he breaks it and he gives it to the disciples and he says, this is my body which is given up for you. And he takes a chalice of wine and he blesses it. And he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which will be shed for many. The people of ancient Israel ratified the old covenant by being sprinkled with the blood to purify their flesh. But the blood of this new covenant is given to us to drink, to purify us from within. And by eating his flesh and drinking his blood, truly present in the Eucharist, we become members of his body. We literally become blood brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. And we become part of that perfect sacrifice that he offers to the Father. We enter into a blood pact with God. And that's why it's so disturbing to read data like the Pew Research Center says that only one-third of Catholics really believe that Jesus is present in the Eucharist? Only one-third of Catholics believe that? That means two-thirds of Catholics think that what we do here is just symbolic, that the bread and the wine only symbolize the body and blood of Jesus. And you have to wonder, if, if that's just symbolic, 
what are we doing here, right? What, what are we doing here? The Passover lamb was symbolic. The, the blood spilled and all of the sacrifices that we read about in the Old Testament, that was symbolic. If you think about it, that was an even more powerful symbol than what we do now. Actual blood was spilled, but that wasn't enough. Symbols aren't enough. What Christ offers us in the Eucharist is not a symbol. It's the real thing. It's the real thing. The great Southern Catholic writer Flannery O'Connor once said about the Eucharist, if it's only a symbol, then the heck with it. She didn't say the heck with it. (laughs) Because she knew what was at stake. She knew what was at stake. From the very first Easter Sunday of the resurrection, when the disciples on the road to Emmaus recognized Jesus in the breaking of the bread, the Eucharist has been at the heart of our worship. It's what being Christian is all about. In the second century, when Christians were being accused of cannibalism by the Romans because they heard that we eat the flesh and drink the blood of our Savior, and they were accused of cannibalism, St. Justin Martyr wrote um, what survives for us as the earliest real good description of the Mass, of how Christians worship. And he says in there, he says, this Eucharist we don't receive as common food or common drink, but the flesh and blood of that Jesus who was made flesh. It goes all the way back to the beginning of the church. And when St. Thomas Aquinas was asked by Pope Urban IV to compose a mass for the newly established Solemnity of Corpus Christi in the year 1264, that's how long we've been celebrating this feast, he wrote the great hymns Pange Lingua and Adoro Te Devote, which we still sing today in the church. And in the hymn Adoro Te Devote, St. Thomas writes these lines, Visus tactus gustus in te fallitur. Sight, touch, taste, you all fail me. Sed auditus solo tue creditur. But only hearing can discern. Credo quid quid dixit dei filius. I believe what the Son of God has said. Nil hoc verbo veritatis verius. Because truth only speaks the truth. I believe what the Son of God has said because truth speaks the truth. We don't believe that Christ is truly present in the Eucharist because we can see it. We don't believe because we can smell it or touch it or taste it or be perceived by any of our senses. We believe that Christ is truly present in the Eucharist for one reason, and that's this. Jesus said, this is my body. This is my blood. And we believe Jesus. We believe Jesus. We can engage in apologetics, and we can cite scripture verses in support of the Eucharist, and reference church fathers, and we can point to the many Eucharistic miracles and all of that, but it all comes down to this. Jesus said, this is my body, and this is my blood. Do we believe Jesus or not? If you don't, then no offense, but I have to ask, what are you doing here? I mean, welcome, I'm glad you're here, but what do you think this is all about? What do you think this is all for? It's all about the Eucharist. 
The church calls the Eucharist the source and the summit of the Christian life. The source and the summit of the Christian life. This is where it begins. It's the source. And it's the summit to which we climb. It's the beginning and the end. It's the Alpha and the Omega. It is God himself offering himself to us. It's why the church exists. Everything in the church flows from the Eucharist and points back to the Eucharist. There's a reason we call the Eucharist and the church both the body of Christ, because it's part of the same reality. You can't have the church without the Eucharist, and you can't have the Eucharist without the church. We're made members of the body of Christ through our baptism, but as members of that body, we're nourished by the body of Christ in the Eucharist. Just like the individual members, the organs of your body, receive life because your blood flows through them. We receive life because the body and blood of Christ flows through us. And Christ offers this life, his body, his blood, his soul, his divinity, to each one of us. And when we receive it, when we receive that gift of life from Christ, that gift of himself, we call it communion. We call it communion. Communion means in union with. It means one together. God and man, one together in Jesus Christ. Christ and the church, one together in the Eucharist. One together, communion. All of that in that little host that fits on your tongue, that you get to chew and swallow. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? If you do, then you must know that this is something solemn that we participate in. It's something much more solemn than a blood brother packed on a playground. It's something much more solemn even than Moses sprinkling the people of the old covenant with the blood of sacrificial bulls. It's much more than that. This is why we fast before we receive the Eucharist as a reminder to ourselves that this is not ordinary food. This is why we don't present ourselves for Holy Communion if we're in a state of mortal sin. Because communion means in union with God. And if we've broken our covenant with God, then we need to repent and be reconciled to him. That's what confession is for. Confession is for the Eucharist. Confession is to give us that opportunity to repent and be reconciled to God so that we can celebrate the Eucharist. Just like baptism and confirmation point towards the Eucharist. All the sacraments point towards the Eucharist. This is why it's such a scandal when Catholics who live lives contrary to the church or who advocate for grave evils like abortion receive communion because part of entering into that covenant is like the people of Israel saying, we agree to follow all that God has said. So it's a scandal when we don't do that. To enter into the covenant means promising to heed the word of God and to live by it. Because this is not a symbol. This is not a symbolic gesture that we participate in. This is the real thing. This is the real thing. This is the wedding feast of the Lamb where the two become one flesh. This is our eternal covenant with God that he himself ratified by his own blood for us. This is a foretaste of heaven right now right here, on earth, at this altar. Do we believe it? Then let's act like it. Let's live like it.